to Rushcast. My name is Jay Mantis. Thank you very much for downloading our show and giving it a listen. We're doing our 2016 album series right now. We're getting towards the end of it. Today we're talking about Test for Echo from 1996-1997-ish when you include the tour. Uh, I hope you had a chance to enjoy our bonus episode that we released in the middle of last week. With Bill Bell, who was a guitarist on Alex Lifeson's solo record, Victor. We reached out to him to come on our Victor episode last week, and he didn't, he didn't see my message until after the episode. So we did like a quick 10, 15-minute interview with him and then put that up as a bonus episode. So go look, go check that out if you didn't see that it was released or even if you didn't know it was a thing because it was kind of cool to talk to him. It was really cool to talk to him, and I think you'd enjoy it. Additionally, if you haven't heard Victor, you should check that out because it, it you know, if you're if you're a big enough fan to be listening to something called Rushcast, then I think it deserves to be heard. And I know there's I have friends of mine who consider themselves huge fans who still haven't given it a full listen. So I think you should check that out. Back on topic now. Thank you very much for downloading our Test for Echo episode because in my opinion test for echo is a record that i i call it the the most neglected record in in the catalog and i'm going to try to defend that stance and tell you why it's a it's a great record on this episode and to help me do that i'm bringing in somebody from wisconsin usa daryl hurst please welcome daryl to the show how's it going man pretty good how are you good thank you for hanging out during my long-winded intro oh that's fine <laughs> Um, so you, I think you reached out to me pretty early and, uh, and volunteered to do Test for Echo. Uh, is this a, a, like a especially meaningful album for you? Uh, well, it came out in the, I'm, I'm 40 now, so at, when it came out, I was around 20. And, you know, with Counterparts Test for Echo, that was probably one of the times where, as a, I was a drummer, back then and focused on improving my drumming skills and, of course, being a, a Neil fan and a Rush fan since I was about four or five, um, this kind of culminated in, um, a, you know, everything that I've learned about Rush up till then, and then my drumming started getting better, so I was really focused on the band. My friends and I, who were in a band, just salivated over Rush for this time frame, you know, right out of high school, and then you know, going into our adulthood. So this was kind of like the culmination of everything that we um, loved about the band and then being able to see them live together as, you know, a group of friends. So it just, there's a, there's a lot of meaning and uh, emotion behind it. Um, I kind of don't think it's my favorite album in that regard, but it just has a special place. This is, I'm, I'm happy that you're here and I get to talk to you because I'm a lot younger and I, I don't, 
uh, you know, I didn't know what Rush was when Tess Vareko was, was the newest material. Um, the earliest I, release I remember was Snakes and Arrows because I got into the band in like tw- 2005 or four, maybe. So I ha- my theory is I think this is a, is a much better record than we all perceive it to be. And I think the reason that is is because in 1996 and 1997, uh, obviously Neil had his tragedy. And I imagine, and I'm asking you this now, I imagine it seemed like the band was done. I imagine as a fan, you were like, well, this is it. And you were left with, like I've said in the past, you're left as with Carve Away the Stone is the last Rush song you'll ever hear. And I think people sat on the material for t- on Test for Echo. They sat on that material for all those years between Test for Echo and Vapor Trails thinking this is it. And I don't think they wanted that material to be the last... The last stuff we get to hear. Like, I think if if they say tomorrow we're done, like we're not even gonna try, we're not gonna pretend, like we're not making anything else from now on, we would all look at Clockwork Angels and the Garden especially and go, yeah, that that's that makes sense that they're gonna go out like that. But I don't think people wanted that from Test for Echo. They kind of looked at Test for Echo and went, this is a good record. But once they thought, oh man, this might be the end, I think that put a weird taste in their mouth. Is that is that sort of does that make sense a little bit? That does make sense. Um, I kind of look at it in reverse. Um, coming off of counterparts, which and I'm trying to, I was trying to think back to about what happened around that time, as far as with the band and the media and with other people that I knew that were fans. Counterparts was such a um, a really, really, in my opinion, great album, and it was kind of a turning point for the band. I remember listening to, I think Bob Coburn did a, uh, a release special on radio and then, you know, it was broadcast over all rock radio stations across the country for counterparts. I don't have a memory of that for this album. Um, so it was kind of a, I would say not a disappointment, but it was kind of a step down from counterparts for me. Um, as far as the, you know, what happened after this, I don't really feel as much disappointment about if this being possibly the last rush album that we'd ever get. Um, I know what you said about carve away the stone. I've actually heard that and kind of snickered when you first heard that you mentioned that on a, on a podcast, but I kind of like the song, you know, I, and I'm sure other people, I mean, it's got a good hook to it. It's not one of their worst, ending songs but yeah i get where you're coming from that could have been the last thing we ever heard band yeah and like and daryl like like here i'll back up my point here the and i i like carve away the stone as well i've heard people like actually crap on it and that makes me sad because i I do think it's a nice tune but the way what you just said there a direct quote is i i kind of what what did you say like i kind of like it i think is what you said right that so that that right there it's like it's sort of a middle of the road sort of you know like kind of gets like a B plus as a rush song compared to every other tune. And I think that that in itself is, is like kind of where my point was like also song order is very important to me. So it being the last song, which is why I bring in the garden as well. The last song on the record to me is very, is very important, you know? Yeah, sure. Um, and I think even the, the guys in interviews, um, were always kind of, uh, 
I don't know if they were picked on, but they've made it a point to, um, you know, be passionate about the song order. And the last song, you know, while it's notoriously um, perceived as being, you know, just throw a song on the end that maybe isn't as important, I think mm-hmm. they've said in interviews that they think out the set, uh, the song list even up to the last song, so it's a specific song that they want. Um, but, you know, it's... Yeah, it's a B-plus song. I understand where you're coming from as far as, you know, people not wanting this album to be the last thing that they ever did. Um, but I don't see the album as that. Um, it's not my favorite album, but there are some really good poignant moments in this album. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, coming from Counterparts, I, like I said, I think it was a step down in Sonics and possibly songwriting, which I'll explain in a little bit. Um, and then if you were to go into the future and, you know, if you were to put yourself in that mindset of, was this the last album? I think it's a good last album in the aspect of Neil changing his drumming style and that in turn changing the songwriting. So it, you know, it, it could be considered a milestone album in that regard. Sure. And I'm glad you're mentioning this relationship that we're going to talk about today between counterparts and test and as well in the same light test and vapor trails, you know, how did test for echo sort of foreshadow into the, the very different sound we got in 2002. So this will be fun. Uh, let's, let's start with the, with the title track. Obviously this is, um, uh, this was easy for me to enjoy when I first heard this record, the song test for echo was easy for me to go. Yeah, this is, this is a good song. I like this a lot. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I remember not the specific date, but I do remember the the song being premiered on rock radio as, you know, their single. And um, it was exciting because we heard, just like in Counterparts, um, you know, they promoted the single, the, the single coming out. And we, my friends and I, made sure that we were there when the local radio station played that song. And it was it was phenomenal, especially being a drummer. And I just wanted to add for this song in particular, um, you know, obviously we're not supposed to look forward to the other, you know, albums when we're doing this, but there's been three times where Neil has played a consistent 16th note double bass pattern on his kit. Mm-hmm. This being the first one. And then, obviously, um, obviously, yeah. <laughs> obviously we got the big you know, one on the next record. Yep. And then, um, in Clockwork Angels, the last double chorus, um, he doesn't play them as strong and they're kind of mixed low, but um, the last chorus, when it repeats, he plays it under, you know, in that section. Mm-hmm. So this is, uh, you know, it's kind of when you hear that in this song, especially for the first time, and you're a drummer, you're like, holy man, this is great. You know, what's this is what I've waited for for Neil, you know, double bass pattern consistent 16th notes for an extended period of time it just got you excited this is why i love bringing people on like i didn't want to do the album series by myself because that's something i never considered and that's such a nice observation you know like if, if you really break it down those there's really only three for you and your in your observations there's really only three times he's done it like that that's as as far as i know and um you know listening to every single album for for years, you know, he does little blasts like in uh, Red Barchetta. He does uh, 
in the second verse, um, he does a little, you know, maybe a three beat, uh, 16th note pattern. And there's other parts and songs. He does like the, the fills where he uses both bass drums and hands, you know, like in Tom Sawyer fill, the, the second fill in the breakdown. But this is the consistent 16th note double bass. And I'd love for somebody to find another one and mm-hmm. re- remind me, but I think it's only the three times. I think that this track might might be the like one of a handful, like maybe five others at most that have no other songs like them. Like I can't take another Rush song and say this one is closely related to Test for Echo. Even songs on the record, I don't think I don't think kind of match the overall uh, energy or, or the vibe of Test for Echo. No, I agree, and it's um, you know if you take it with the rest of the songs of the record, it definitely stands out as being um, something a little more dramatic. Yeah, um, yeah. And there's a spark, there's a spark to it. And, you know, maybe like big money would be comparable. Um, but still big money is more concise with the rest of the album versus this one where it's just kind of like a standout. It kind of reminds me of a band that maybe wrote a song and, you know, it was like their one great song, and then they wrote a bunch of other songs which are really good, but they had the one shining moment on that album. Mm-hmm. And that was, I think this song represents that for this album specifically. It's a really good rock song. It's not perfectly created as far as structure, um, whereas personally, and we'll get to it, I think, like, uh, The Color of Right is a better structured song. Sure. But it's just a really good, dynamic, vibrant song. It's got those lyrics which are really interesting for um, to listen to as far as storytelling. And I think Pi actually helped uh, write lyrics for this. That's right. And it's it's definitely noticeable. He's got that style that Neil doesn't have, but they, when they work together, you can kind of tell that it's both of them, you know, giving input. Um, but yeah, it's just a really great you know, song, and it's just because it's different. You know, this album, to me, was always the detune album. There's a lot of drop tuning, a lot of alternate tunings with the guitar and bass, and we hear it on the the first song. I think Test for Echo is like a half step lower on each string or something like that. Uh, if I Just remembering from when I would try to play it on bass, and we move on to the second track, which comes out you know, even heavier than the first, and... Uh, heavier in like a metal sort of way and uh, mm-hmm. driven is in drop detuning as well. And also yeah, I, it, driven also highlights these, uh, one of the weirdest set of time signatures that I think rush has ever used. And that's a very f- quick sort of 15 with a combination of eight and seven alternating. It's a really, really tricky thing to execute. Yeah. Yeah. When I tried playing these songs, um, Back when this came out, uh, the you know with Neil's change in drumming as far as timekeeping with the, with Driven, I love the exercise of trying to play the song and keeping that quarter note pulse on the hi hat with your left oh, with absolutely. your left foot. Yep. And um, when you hear and this is something Neil has stated, he said uh, this album he thought the drums were recorded um, really well. He really liked how they captured the drums, and I want to touch on the the recording and production aspect later of the song or of the album. 
in general. But for this one, keeping that pulse on the hi-hat, especially when there's, you know, over threes, basically after the the bass uh, break and then it goes into the little guitar when everybody else comes in, the da-da-da-da-da, then he keeps playing that hi-hat and it's changed like the time goes across the bar line, which Rush does all the time and does it masterfully. I mean, I just love how he's able to keep that pulse. And it's just a really great rocking, like, slow jam, I guess I would call it. If Test Rush had a slow jam, it would be <laughs> this song. <laughs> Test for Echo was one of the, the last records I obtained when I was getting, you know, creating my collection with my dad, uh, buying the CDs as we became fans. Uh, Rio was one of the first... Th- like kind of exposures I had to the band. So I heard this amazing, heavy, like absolutely riftastic song called driven on Russian Rio. And I, you know, each time I'd find an album in a CD store, I would, I would, that I didn't have, I would buy it and I'd flip it around and see if driven was there. And it took me, you know, all 20 albums of doing that until I finally got to that blue back that said driven on the back of it. And, um, you know, Having heard that Rio recording so much, I was highly disappointed in the studio cut because you got to remember, I like I was, I heard those two in reverse order than you heard them, Daryl. Because you you've probably right. or I know you've heard the studio recording much more than the Rio version because it's all, so much older. But um, right. there is a a very that that would be on my top five, my list of top five songs that sound different live. You know, the most sure. different live. Yeah. I could see that, and um, you know, it's. I'm glad they they released this one as a single too, I believe, and I'm glad they did because um, it had the the darkness of stick it out um, from the last album, but I felt that it was a a better song for the masses as far as I know people that don't like Rush that remember the song Driven because it was played on the radio and it was a good catchy tune Mm -hmm. um donna helper came on our show and had a lot of really good things to say about this track in particular this track also has what i would proudly label as a a really nice like b minus b plus uh music video for rush you know i I know rush doesn't value music videos very highly like i know they put a lot of work into it but i i know they don't um I think it's Alex who who's very vocal. Like I don't care, <laughs> you know. I don't. We do these because no, exactly. we have to. But it, this yeah, one isn't got, bad. Um, this, this one doesn't make you cringe. No, it doesn't. And it's while it's it's pretty. Um, the video is friendly to the era in that you could tell it's from that era, but it's done really well and it's not cringeworthy. Yeah. Now the video, all the videos I see on YouTube which is the only place I've seen the videos for driven are reversed. Does that make sense? Like, like Getty's, ba- um, it looks like Getty's playing a left-handed bass. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, with the next song, half the world, um, I don't know, you know, if it's reversed, but I do remember some reverse parts in that video as far as video footage. But, um, so that I don't remember have... the reverse. Yeah. I, and you're making it sound like it's maybe like an intentional thing. Yeah, could, and I don't think that I don't know the two videos weren't didn't appear the the same, so I don't know if they're the same directors, but it could be an intentional thing. Yeah. But 
you know, being a musician, I, I like that you find quirks like that because I'm noticed, I notice that stuff all the time, especially pictures of, uh, you know, bands. And I'm like, Hey, that drummer's not left-handed guitar <laughs> right. players not on the on the right side of the stage. You should be on the left side. Yeah. And if, if you're paying attention, those aren't hard to find <laughs> you and I understand yeah. that. <laughs> so we move on to, uh, and I won't, I guess I'll just say now, 95% of this album is detuned. I won't label, I won't say that about every track as we get to it, but I'm looking at them now and they're all detuned for the most part. Um, Half the World is a fun track to play live. I, I, I jam with some, some of my Rush fans once in a while. My Rush friends, I mean. And we always play a, Half the I World. A, I have a very specific comment about Half the World that I know that you would like. I think it's I would have to say musically it's one of Getty's best bass lines. And the reason I say that is um, there's a moment when this came out, obviously I listened to it all the time, just constantly through and through and through and through because um, the, it came out in October and the, or September and the show that I was going to was in November. So you want to listen to it as much as you can. One day I was listening to it with headphones and the last verse of this song, the bass line is undoubtedly one of the most beautiful bass lines that complements a vocal line and complements a song. It's just unreal, just what he does in that last verse. And I, I hope everybody at least plays this, and if it's just one time, listen to the bass line throughout the whole song. But then when the last verse comes through, just listen to the interplay with the spaces between the lines and the actual technique. I mean, he's playing chords. He's playing these little runs that Getty does so awesome, but he's just, it's almost perfect bass line. And just that little moment. And it's just, it's one of my favorite songs because of that, I think. It's really, Daryl, it's really refreshing to hear you talk about, you know, like if you, if you came on my show and said, listen, man, Tom Sawyer, bass part, like it's the best. I'd be like, yeah, cool, but I've you know I've never in my life heard someone to say to me, half the world has the most killing bass part in this one specific section. Like this is this is so much fun. Uh, I I agree with you completely. And and to add on, one thing I always pointed to on this record is in that exact same spot. And it's example an example of how to use a drop tuned bass or a five string bass. We know Getty hardly ever plays five strings, and he's detuned right. on this one. So the tendency as a musician, when you're down tuned, is to just live on that low string because now you have lower notes that you're not normally uh, exposed to or have access to. Mm -hmm. So it, and I learned this song on the bass because we play it all the time. Getty plays the extended range note, the low D that he now has. He plays it once, and it's in the third verse, exactly where Daryl just pointed it out. In that third verse, he so nicely echoes the 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 vocal melody, and uh, yep, yep. it's in between a vocal two vocal lines where you just hear instrumental for a second, and he drops down to that low D. And what happens for me as a bass player is if you don't touch those low notes until when they're absolutely necessary, they mean so much more. If he had been playing that oh, yeah. low D for the whole song, it wouldn't be as special. And I think that's, I can point to that as a music teacher to my own students and say, that's how you use low notes or extended range notes. You know, I, I've never thought of it that way because I'm not a bass player. I mean, I love bass players and I love 
good bass lines, but I never thought of the that note that way. And I, that's one of the specific points or parts that I that resonated with me is that that spot. And then the next spot that he does it in that same verse, he plays those chords mm-hmm. um, where he goes up. But you know, for you to explain it, that makes a lot of sense because it, it touched me in some way. But I don't know why. So you just gave the explanation, and I'm like, oh. Yeah, that makes sense. You yeah, know, I mean, it's so cool that we're that having. Low, he's not riding on that low note throughout the whole song because it would just get muddy and dark. Exactly. Just, it just throws it in there, and it's like a little. It's less you know, special. Treat to, yeah. Which is why I like when you know my favorite application of that is when I'm listening to a song, whether it's Rush or otherwise, and I'm like, oh, the bass, the bass is is doing a good job. This is cool bass part. And then at the end of the track, I hear one or two notes or one lick on a low B string, the fifth string, which tells me now, oh, he's playing a five string. But I didn't know that for the sure. first four minutes of this song because he only played the four that you normally have. That We're getting yeah. off topic. I'm just I'm just rambling as a bass player now. Um, More music nerds. I mean, this, you know, we could probably do this for about another five hours. Yeah. <laughs> so The Color of Right is a track that... I'll admit, took me a long time to appreciate. I didn't think it was a bad song, but it took it. It was one of the last tracks where I was like, "Oh, this is this is something special. This is a really nice song." Uh, it gets a lot of crap, man. I know it does, and it's frustrating because I think I said it earlier. It's it's one of I think it's one of their best written songs as far as um, uh. Friendly to the masses. Um, I don't think it was ever released on radio, but it's a good radio song to me, and it, it's a fun song to play because it's so simple as far as technique-wise. Yeah, you have to have the chops, but it's nothing that's overwhelming. It's just a really good song. I like the hooks. Um, I love some of the lyrics. Uh, you know, Neil's got this thing where he writes these lyrics, and people make fun of him for it. But then he has these points where he writes these really touching, I don't want to get too sappy, but very loving lines. And it kind of contradicts what everybody hates about him. But then when you try to tell the haters about it, they're like, they don't get it and they they don't appreciate him. Yeah. Um, the, the take it easy on me now, I'd be there if I could. That's one of the coolest lines for a rock drummer to write. Right. It's just like, you know but suddenly you were gone from all the lives left or marked upon. I equate it to something special like that. And it's only, I think it's only used once in the color of right, but it's just, he kind of repeats the same uh, phrasing, but that take it easy on me now, that's, you know, it kind of sends chills if you're in the right, in the right frame of mind, just Mm -hmm. because it's a poignant, you know, lyric and it's something that you can hear him saying, you know, you imagine him saying that. Yeah, I actually this week had been thinking, unrelated to not necessarily Test for Echo specific, but thinking about his lyrics and his writing and th- and taking into consideration how, like you said, people kind of crap on him um, and it's not really justified. Uh, I think even the lyrics I don't understand, like I tweeted this recently, sometimes I don't necessarily understand what the lyrics mean, but I love them because of how poetic they are. Like yeah. it's just a nice like he, it's just a nice order of words. The the words he chose is perfect. The the order, the the way, the rhythm is as you say them. If you read it as poetry, like you don't have to understand what it means to appreciate it and to love it. 
Um, mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm totally on board. Now, with the color of right, and, and for example, or by the way, I, I actually like that next line even more when he says you're so full of what is right, you can't see what is good. That's one of my favorite yeah. lines. I think awesome. the, the very beginning of this track is the perfect representation of the Tesferaco guitar sound. I think Tesferaco has a super, uh, uh, super like characteristic guitar sound, like very unique to this album. Uh, and I That's think it's the most, I think it's the most direct. That you say that. <laughs> we got that, that phone delay going on again. Uh, I just think it's aside from Neil's, obvious drumming style changes it's the biggest change from counterparts to test for echo and that couple of chords at the beginning of this track i think is the best like spot you can point to i'm glad you said that because that's later on after we finish this um the song order i wanted to say something about how i don't really care for the, the guitar sound on this record compared to counterparts sure, yeah. uh, but i do agree that it's, it's a really big change so mm-hmm. i do agree with that i do like the part that you're talking about in this song i do like his chording and his his playing on a lot of these songs sonically i don't um i'm not really too hip on the the tone um but we'll get into that later but um along with um the intro i think the you know after that little middle section where they go back into kind of like the guitar picking guitar lead into the, the last verse. Yep. Um, I really like that part. And I like the interplay between the style of picking that Alex does. And then the, um, the bass line where he does a do 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 right before they start singing again. I, that part is way different than anything you probably ever heard Rush do at that time too. So there's definitely a songwriting thing going on here. That's, that's, kind of foretells some future because it definitely changed from the last album. I, uh, I do think the band extended, I think they found harmony between guitars, voice and synthesizers on counterparts. And I, I think that carried over in a very similar fashion on this record and a specific moment and a specific example of that is after the line, uh, you're so full of what is right. You can't see what is good you hear this synthesizer sort of climbing the stairs, like one note at a time, yep. getting higher and higher. And I think that is a beautiful application of that sort of sounding synthesizer uh, mixed in yes. with these big guitar layers, sort of like this washy, compressed guitar, martial guitar sound. You know, you know what I'm talking about. Um, mm-hmm. I think that, and it happens in a few more places on the record. We should, we should keep going though. Um, sure. Cause we're going to get more of those as we move along. Uh, next up, we have uh, Toad. Uh, no, Time and Motion. I'm not a fan of this song. You're not. <laughs> I'm not. Um, I, now I'll go I out on a it. limb. Our good friend Jeff Garrett, who is known as not liking the 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 more metal rush stuff, I imagine he's not a big fan of this one either. <laughs> it sounds like a song that needed needed to be finished. What do you as mean? As far as um. Uh, you know, well, it starts out. I like the heaviness of it. I, I'm, I am a fan of the heavier stuff. Um, in fact, I was. I remember specifically when this came out. Uh, my friends and I were like, "Oh my, they must have been listening to Dream Theater for this intro because the keyboards sound exactly like a Dream Theater, you know, awake song." Mm-hmm. Um, but um, 
Yeah, it seems a little too long. It's, it's a lot of repetition. Okay, I'll I'll take the the long comment, and I'll eat that one. Like that's uh, it might okay. Maybe it's a little too long. Uh, this was one for me, Daryl, that I just liked right off the bat because it was heavy and um, fun okay. to play, and it was it was kind of a weird rhythm, a weird time signature as well. Uh, the, it's sort of like a unison chugging. It's again, I like the dream theater analogy because it is sort of dream theatery. And this is, I, I imagine a time when dream theater was, I, I don't even know if dream theater, I, I think they're old enough to be playing back in 96, but um, oh, yeah. one of my, I think the defining moment on time in motion is the guitar solo, which happens. Oh, you know, that's the one thing that I yeah. was say about the song. <laughs> yes. It happens over uh, that weird time signature. And it's, it sort of reminds me of the energy and, and the, the complete bombastic, you know, unchained uh, evilness that was the turn the page solo from Hold Your Fire it had a lot of pinch harmonics in it. It just, you could not contain the energy that came from that solo. Yes, that's very good. I love I loved the solo in the song, and that's a good analogy. And also, I was thinking, even as far as influences, there's kind of like an Andy Summers uh, driven to tears, disjointed, not really, you know, he did it again, uh, or Alex did it again, you know, the Andy Summers thing, I think on the end of uh, different strings, you know, where it's just kind of out there and there's no rhythm to it per se, but it's just really, um, yeah, disjointed or, but it's cool. I mean, it's one of the points, the high points of this song for me, probably the only one. I, I like this section after as well, where we get this sort of like a detective theme happening with real quiet guitar arpeggios and then back into then back into the nice, quiet, spooky, mysterious sound. Uh, that's a nice offset, I think, from the rest of the, the track, but I would, I would also agree. Yes, yeah. So right, I so guess I don't really hate it as much yeah. as maybe I. I, <laughs> I was able I to change your mind but... just a little bit, right? Yes. Um, now another song that does not get enough credit and is often somehow tossed into the conversation and said in the same sentence as songs like uh, "Dog Years," "Taishan." I, I don't understand this. "Totem" is often. A, a track that people say is in their bottom three. I don't understand that. I, had, I there, don't either. This was another one that took me a little bit to get into. I think that the the heart and the gold that this song has exists in the middle of the track, and I think that's why it's so um, infrequently loved, because you have to really work to get to the good stuff, in my opinion, or the best stuff. Um, I would... I would... I don't think you have to work because I think the beginning is so anthemic. You got the the drum fills um, throughout each of the intro and the reintros. Uh, the the drums are huge. Um, I don't necessarily like as much of the acoustic mixed in with the guitars, but it's. I just think the intro starts out awesome, and then the verses are driving. And again, like the there's some double bass. Uh, licks that Neil's doing um, into the pre-choruses. 
So for me, I don't have to wait till the middle of the song to get what I want out of it, but I can see where you're coming from, where the detractors should be pointed to where you were talking to as far as great parts. If they don't like the song, then that, you know, the special parts of the song. But for me, I mean, I love this song. It's a, it's a great, great song for me. Yeah, it's, it's up there, I think, in the top, you know, three or four on this, on this album, in my opinion. Um, and what, even that last, uh, that last, I believe, what I see, the, where everything after the breakdown, they uh-huh. actually are able to take it up a notch even with like the double vocals and stuff where it's, it's really anthemic and they build upon being huge. So they just sort of like spinal tap, they take it one louder and it's, it's kind of unique because it just gets fuller for that last, I believe what I see. Um, and it's, and then it just drops down to that single voice where he sings. Um, I think I the be- last line. Is yeah, yeah. I know exactly here. what you're talking about. And he carries it over into the, you know, the lower, it's just like a big climax and then it just kind of tapers off. That's great. It's a nice effect. It, yeah. You know, the vocally, this record does a lot of nice things as well. And we're seeing that in this instance. Um, I think, I think this song is, is a good song from the, from, you know, right off the bat. But I just think, like I said, the gold exists in the bridge and then the ensuing guitar solo, which I think is Layer is obviously composed very nicely, executed nicely, but what's happening underneath the solo, I think, is beautiful. There's so much space left open. It's such a, a spacey kind of ambient sound underneath the solo. Mm-hmm. And then after this, like when he says angels and demons inside of me, uh, yeah. There's a Alex playing these two harmonics. Doom, 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 doom. He's almost using his guitar as like a, as they would use synthesizers in the past, more of like a sound yeah. effect sort of thing. And as we yeah, and that's it's cool to hear that because it's um, he I think he does that in the choruses too, doesn't he? Yeah, I was um, I was just gonna say well, as we get later into this album, starting with this one, we're really starting to hear more guitar layering, which is a yeah. what does that foreshadow? Uh, maybe Vapor Trails, which was all guitar layering. You know, right. I think this is a little bit of a um, a peek into the future for what the next album's going to have. Well, it's funny you say that because I think in uh, I read on the wiki page that um, Alex did take more of a production role as over from Getty starting with this album, and it's obvious on the next album that he had a lot to do <laughs> with production. But so yeah, that, yeah, that's a good observation because from what I've read, that it it did happen like that. And you know, I had a few a few people on Twitter who came out and said, "Hey, uh, make sure you you know don't give Totem too much love," which I thought that's exactly what I'm going to do. But they pointed out that they don't like they don't like the last line. They said it doesn't fit. Sweet uh, Sweet Chariot, Swing oh, Low, yeah, come sweet, for me, right? Yeah. Uh, they said it doesn't fit. It's out of nowhere. I think it's a nice sort of period on on that story. It's a nice sort yeah, of I like outro. I like the vocal melody. Um, you know, for people who are criticizing it, Neil's got a lot of things that he probably does that don't that everybody doesn't like as far as lyrically. It's just one of those things where it's like, you know, you got to take it warts and all. If you don't like that one line, um, which I don't 
mine personally. I like more of the, I like the vocal melody and the vocal texture of the line more so than the line. It could have been something else. Yes. Because he didn't write it, obviously. It's a, it's a you but, know, a, 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 line, a lyric mm-hmm. in a previous song. But melodically, but, it's beautiful. Like the melody itself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the other thing was the the sort of vocal woes during the chorus, which you know, I'll uh, maybe I agree that 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 isn't definitely not my favorite part of the song. That's not what makes the song good for me. But that's also I think foreshadowing Vapor Trails because Vapor Trails had no synthesizers on it, and how did they make up yeah. for that sound? They had extra guitar layers, and they layered the crap out of Getty saying "whoa," literally singing that uh, syllable. So I think that is a little mm-hmm. bit of a, a glimpse as well. But I don't yeah, think it really you know, that part with the woes, the woes in the song, that's also where we are able to hear the Alex harmonic, those boom, 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 boom. Yep. So you wouldn't necessarily be able to hear them as well with a vocal line going over it. So I'll take the woes if I could, you know, have it as a piece like that where you can hear the harmonics. Sure. Uh, let's move on to a track that I've essentially done for, uh, probably an episode and a half on this one track, uh, and that's Dog Years. Dog Years would probably be at the bottom with Taishan on most people's lists, and um, I don't think it's I don't think it's warranted. Now I ha- I have a th- I have a theory. I want to hear what Daryl has to say about Dog Years first, and then I'll tell you what my theory is. Okay, Dog Years. I l- I don't love the song, but I like it a lot. And I don't understand the hate for the song. Um, let's just take the lyrics out of the, the equation for a minute. The the vibe that they have with the song, the driving rock thing, and the again Neil's doing these rock Steve Gadd things, where with the you know two bass drums and um, stuff like that, and the driving ride symbol. Um, they're trying to go for something, and I think I know why it is. Um, they obviously were produced by Peter Collins, who's produced a lot of other stuff. My personal opinion is he didn't have as much input on this album as other albums. Um, the engineer on this record was a guy by the name of Trip Norell, who's done a lot of um, uh, stuff in the 90s, Rollins bands. Um, he did some Weezer. He did R.E.M. Automatic for the People. Um, he did some of Faith No More. This reminds me of a track that um, the the engineer actually had some input on just because of the the rawness of the track and how it drives. So I think that explains a lot of why people may not like this, the music. Lyrically, I like the verses. I don't want to hear about turtles. I'm sorry. I don't <laughs> Or the tortoises or Galapagos Islands. Well, um, we, but we... I like the... Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, lyrically, I like the interplay, um, or not the interplay, but the uh, the, meta, uh, the references to uh, a dog's life and a person's life. I think the lyrics in the first verse are really cool as far as uh, we get it backwards in the seven years go by like one. I think that's really catchy as far as um, a lyrical statement. Um, the sniff at the hydrants automatic thing. I don't think that's as bad as what people say. Um, so lyrically, I don't like it as much, but I do like it. Uh, musically, I like what they try to do, um, but I can understand totally why people don't like the song. Yeah, so we took a, like an in-depth 
look at it and sort of analyzed what this song was and, and why maybe people uh, don't like it. And, and a lot of people came on the show and defended it. I think Jim Lasby was was a big one. Um, he he and I looked at it and we realized, you know, lyrically there's actually some cool things happening. I think my dad was on the show too, who pointed out some some nice uh, sort of double meanings that are happening in in the lyrics. In you know what I think is, I think we don't like this song because of the hook and the chorus. I think the chorus is corny, musically. I think it's silly and bad. I think it's bad writing, mostly vocally. Like I don't, I don't like the melody. I don't like the way the melody works with the lyrics. I don't like the way both of those things interact with the music. I don't like the guitar part. This is just in the chorus. So that's what I think. And uh, actually, the the chorus was something I wanted to bring up because that's again the classic rush playing over the bar line. I mean, if you were to count one, two, three, four, everything seems normal, but on the choruses, you know, Neil's doing these fills and accenting over the bar line. I I, I kind of like the choruses for that because it's it's classic rush playing over the bar line, being totally um, not conforming to songwriting. I can understand where it where you wouldn't like it, but for me, it's it's kind of like a Who song with Keith Moon playing, sort of like on um, on Counterparts between Sun and Moon. But it's it's pretty bombast in that regard, as far as drums and then hitting accenting those um, hits over the bar line. Um, I guess I don't see. Um, that being a low point of the song, uh, that middle part is the one that does it for me. <laughs> well, all right. Well, let's move to a better track, hands down, uh, in Virtuality. Uh, Virtuality, a tune that maybe because it's in the same key and has a similar vibe, uh, a song that feels like time in motion at the beginning with a heavy riff. Yeah. Um, no, I had comments or notes about virtuality. Um, I don't like it, uh, just as specifically for the lyrics. Um, I think the lyrics are dated, and I think he made a mistake with dating those lyrics. However, the song, I would buy just for the, you know, the instrumental version of this song, because I like it so much. Right. Especially those those riffs, which are classic. Now, if you, you know, with Victor, um, the album... The second song, I forget what it was, but that's a classic Alex guitar riff. I think this song is a classic. Like, Alex brought this song, this opening riff, and said, let's make a song around this. It's a classic Alex um, intro riff, which I love. Sure. And and let's take it and look at it musically, instrumentally. Um, I think that... It, yeah, Alex brought this riff, and obviously it sounds great. I think it's one of the sonic high points of the record is that riff on this. This song and as a whole, I think, sounds better sonically than the rest of the album. But the I think the, the other two guys uh, supplemented that, that riff really nicely. I think the bridge is crafted really, really well, and there's all these like stop time, these th- moments where the band stops, and then comes back in or has like a specific hit on a specific beat. And I think those are all executed perfectly. I think it's a good song. And I like the ending. The ending's a little different than anything else we've heard from the band. Yeah. So I think I think it's a good tune. It's it's also not a tune. Like I'm not surprised to hear that you're not a fan of it. 
are a huge fan of it. I've heard other people say they don't dig it. Um, I've heard a lot of people really go to town on the lyrics, uh, which I'm th- I'm thankful you didn't. Like you know, lyrics are dated, yeah. But was Neil supposed to know that modems weren't going to be a thing in the future? You know, like you have to take it with a grain of salt. They're dated now, yeah, but do. back then it was you know it was relevant. Um, yeah, and it's um you, you do have to do that. I mean, I'm sure Neil would even say some of his lyrics um in the first four albums you'd probably cringe at too. So I mean, I I like taking lyrics. Um, Neil's lyrics, uh, as they are, I also like taking them as words, being the instrument and Getty using those, as, you know, the melody, using the uh, the lyrics as an instrument. So I kind of, this is a song where I'm like, okay, I'm not going to listen to the lyrics, I'm just going to listen to the melody and how Getty sings them, and I'll enjoy the song because of that versus reading into the lyrics. This is one of those songs for me from the band. Is it fair to say that? On this album, we go from a, a lyrically weak song to a stupendous song lyrically in Resist. Yes, yes, I love Resist, and I'm, the lyrically, it, I think it's it's definitely grown on me um, when I as I've come to appreciate all of their their catalog. Um, I really love this song, and I love. The lyrics more than the music, but I love the music. You know, I, I really like the music, but I, the lyrics are pretty top-notch. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't deny the lyrics are amazing, but I have to say that this is a song that where the music hits me harder than the lyrics. Like, I love the lyrics, and I, I understand, and I, I can look at them and appreciate how well-crafted they are. But to me, the music is just, again, like you were saying, completely in, inverted uh, is that for something about this music on this track hits me harder uh, than the, everything else on the record. But that's the reason I don't think... That's the reason, in my opinion, the acoustic version that was performed a few tours isn't my favorite thing ever. Like People look at that recording and say, that is incredible. It's one of the rare times they do something acoustic. It's in a different key, I believe. Uh, it's mm-hmm. so so drastically different than the studio recording, but the studio recording I think is so good that I can't I can't just abandon it and only listen to the acoustic version now. You know I like them both. And I think the studio recording, obviously, you know, with the acoustic version, let's be honest, Neil needed some time after the, his drum solo to catch smoke and catch his breath. Yeah. I mean, it's totally like. That song was placed there for that reason, in my opinion. And I'm glad that they did the acoustic version, but I don't think they could mimic the intensity they had on the record live. It's just, I don't think this song would translate well live to get that energy that they have, especially, you know, um, after the breakdown and then they, they build up the whoa woes and then they had an awesome fill, drum fill. And then back into the to the, the the verse. I don't think they they would sound as huge as it does on this record. For me, this is um, again a carryover from Counterparts. What I said about Counterparts was Alex had this. I call it the soaring guitar tone. I don't know what if it's the chorus or delay or reverb that he's got on his sound, but it, it soars. And this is evident again on Resist similar to like a nobody's hero solo or yep. the speed of love yep. and, and, and those tracks. I think I, I hear that again, 
as well as other places on Tesferoco, but definitely in that main melody um, on Resist. Yeah, so, that's and the, he he repeats that throughout, and it's kind of like a, you know, he wrote this melody thing that's kind of like a, um, you know, it's it's the point of the song, and it, it's used as like a vocal line, his guitar melody that where he's just screaming over everything. And it's a really good piece of writing. I mean, it's a really good part of that song. Sure, yeah. Now, um, I'm trying to think. Was was the acoustic version on R30 and Rio? Do you remember? Um, I know it was on R30. I'm not sure if it was on Rio or not. I don't think it was. Well, I don't think it was. Well, it's definitely performed for at least one tour. But Resist yeah. was Resist like the studio version, or I guess the electric version, was performed on the tests tour. Um, yeah, and that's um, something I was thinking about because I saw them twice on that tour, and I don't remember that being. I just remember the acoustic version. I don't remember the full band version on the two shows. But um, yeah, it says it says it was ago. dropped for a few dates, so it's possible you didn't hear it. Um, yes, I believe, uh, well, when we get to this point, as far as the tour, I wanted to talk about that a little bit after this, uh, song list. Sure. Um, the one that the two show, one of the two shows that I went to, it was dropped. Um, cool. Uh, so limbo is a song and we'll talk about our forties set list here for a second. Uh, we, a lot of us thought resist would be performed, but a bunch of you said that resist would be performed acoustic. And I was like, no, if we're going to hear it, I want to hear it. <laughs> I want to hear the electric version. Another right, one, right. I, I insisted we were going to hear limbo because it's the only instrumental that we haven't heard in forever and we didn't get it. But I think limbo, the more I listen to it, the more I like it. And the more I go, this is actually a very good instrumental. I, I think I ranked it dead last on our instrumental episode, but it's still, it's still great. It's still per- perfect in a way. Yeah, I I like it. Um, you know, growing up with the last few albums, you know, before these, um, you know, the last two, this instrumental and obviously on Counterparts, I was really kind of bummed out that they went the slower tempo versions of instrumentals because um, Where's My Thing? I mean, that's that, that was fantastic. So you had the next two, and it's like, they're slower, but they're, uh, you know, okay. But this one is a little better um, in regards that the the drumming on it's a lot more technical, um, and there's a, the the riff is is catchier. I think um, it's got like a song. It could be used in a a song with lyrics. Yeah, you know, I've been thinking about, and I'm trying to remember which specific spot that I hear this. I hear a little bit of Peaceable Kingdom in Limbo, or at least I did uh, this week when I listened, because I know Peaceable Kingdom was going to be an instrumental, and then it had lyrics thrown at it. So you just mentioned how you could hear lyrics on Limbo. Um, I do think there there are similarities there, and I I need to sort of examine that more, and uh, and so I can point point to which parts match, but there there are some, like, overlaps, I think, between those two tracks. But man, I definitely I, hear that. I wish we could have heard it live, though, because I know you heard it, but I didn't get to hear it yet. 
And, um, I, you know, the bass playing is really good, especially at the end. Um, the, the riffs that he does at the end where they, where they do the stops. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a great bass playing. I just want to say overall, um, with his bass playing, I always think of Getty's bass playing in three, three parts. Um, you know, he started out obviously with, uh, and Twistle and Squire, I think those uh, up to like, you know, probably Signals would be his and Twistle Squire um, years, and then he moves on to like Jocko and Jeff Berlin sound, and then stuff after Counterparts is definitely like less Claypool influence. So, you know, he's got these eras that he goes through, and uh, his last era. Even though I love his early stuff, I think it, Getty's bass playing in his, the last era of their catalog is some of the best as far as technique and this, you know, songwriting. Absolutely, and it's the most unique. Yes. Um, I like the, the Jeff Berlin comment. That's a, that's a nice label to put on that kind of playing in like the Power Windows era. Yeah. Uh, so we talked a little bit about Carve Away the Stone. But again, the top of this track is a nice example of like the color of right, this Tesfereco yep. guitar sound. Yeah, and um, you know, I I, I like Carboy Stone. I love the guitar picking, the electric guitar picking on the choruses. Um, if you just concentrate on that, it's got a real good like arpeggiated um, repeat, and it's just really hooky and it melodically it kind of sets the tone for the spirit of the song and like emotion. It's just really cool. And it's one of those Alex things where he can be as wacky and quirky, but he can also be really soulful and, 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 you know, lovely at the same time or in the same album. You know, I, I mentioned this on maybe our second episode or something like one of the wicked early episodes of this podcast uh, Carve Away the Stone, and this is a really weird tie-in, but Carve Away the Stone, that exact arpeggio you were just talking about in the chorus, mm-hmm. I think is mirrored. I think Clockwork Angels is littered with quotes from older Rush material, whether they want, like whether it was by design or not. So obviously there's like I the Bastille Day explore, one. I hope you guys explore that. Well, there's like the obvious ones, but then there's some that I don't even think they realized happen. Uh, and that's in Wish Them Well. There's uh, oh yes. There's the same, yep. almost the same exact arpeggio from the chorus of "Carve Away the Stone" that you were just talking about. So if you don't, if you can't hear that, you need to go check that out because it's kind of creepy how similar those two, two completely unrelated songs, have the same guitar part. Yeah, and that's I love that type of riff, especially from Alex who does it so well, and it's it just makes those points in those songs memorable. I mean, that's all I can say about it. You know, this, this album has one of the first things I thought about this album was the album art was incredible. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it meant. I just thought it looked cool. And they have, there's the one we know the actual cover, but then there's also like a, a photo that looks more like a photograph and less like a painting or maybe the opposite. Maybe it looks more like a painting. It's less blue and more gray. Do you know what I'm talking about? You know, I've heard people talk about this. Maybe I don't know if you've mentioned it before on the podcast, but um, 
I've heard of that, and similarly to the Grace Under Pressure, different album covers, um, colors, um, on the reissues, I don't know if that's what you're talking about, like a similar thing. Um, it's, it's not. It's definitely not like a new cover. It might be the cover of the tour book, is what I might. Oh be. yeah, I do have the tour book. It's it's uh, more of a matte uh, or a sepia style look. That's the tour book itself. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's right. And uh, I'm looking at it now, and it does have a oddly uh, grace under pressure sort of feel to it. Yeah, but I, I loved it. I love the artwork. Um, the the cover is really, really cool. Interesting. Cool. Um, what uh, what was it you were going to say about the tour? Um, yes, the tour. I saw them twice. Um, as I said, I was forty years old. I'm forty years old now, and I had the pleasure of being able to go with my best friend, who I was in bands with since you know high school. Uh, we lived next to each other. We'd sit, spend summers listening to music. Um, you know, just sitting outside or jamming. My birthday is on November 1st, and we were able to go to the November 1st show um, at the Bradley Center in Milwaukee, and that was really, really fun. Um, of course, me being of age, I bought them. I didn't drink at the time. I think I had, like, two Bartles and James Mai Tai wine coolers or something like that, hmm. but I was the guy that could buy the liquors. We rented a hotel, um, went down on November 1st to uh, to the show, and it was it was fun. I don't remember as many specifics about that show, except obviously hearing 2112 for the first time in its entirety, literally the 10th time they ever played it. That was the 10th show of the tour. Yeah. The whole thing through that was, that was the coup de grace for the whole, that whole tour. And up to that point in my life, um, my rush fandom. I mean, that was awesome. And then the so um, you enjoyed the that because I catch a lot of heat. Maybe the one thing I've said on this the history of the show that pissed the most people off is when I say I, w- I, w- I would be disappointed to hear that thing all the way through. And I say that because I have different stages. If different stages didn't exist, then yeah, I'd, pro- I'd probably want to hear the whole thing. But since I've heard it um, in, in recording form, like I would much rather hear other tracks in all of those slots that it's eating up. You know what I mean? Like, do you sympathize a oh, little bit with me? or No, no. I understand where you're coming from. Um, I heard it once. I didn't need to hear it again on tour um, as far as 20 until the whole in its entirety. Um, so, I under- yeah, give me that time slot for other songs that I haven't heard. Yeah. Um, but as uh, in 1996 as being a 20, 21 year old and, and having 2112 being my first album I ever owned. I mean, that was a huge thing to be able to see that, but you know, you see it once, I don't need to see it again. Or I'm glad that different stages was out there because mm-hmm. I still listen to that just for that experience. And I'm glad that guys like you are able to have that too. But yeah, give me some, give me, you know, 25 minutes of, um, deep cuts. Deep cuts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Some played. some vault tunes, you know. Um, yeah. And I I I feel that I'll. I oh got people are going to be so angry at me for the end of this episode. I get a little bit of that when I hear the twenty one twelve synthesizers start at recent Rush shows. I hear it and I'm like, oh cool, but like that's a lot of time <laughs> even to play just the overture. Like 
that's a big chunk of time that I'm not hearing other tracks, but I, I understand they have to play it. And uh, I'm not whining that they're playing 2112. I, I love 2112, but there is a little bit of like deep down, I'm a little like, uh, you know, I've heard this a lot. <laughs> no, that's, um, and that's what I thought too. Um, there's songs that you just get burnt out on, even in regards to, um, you know, Tom Sawyer. Yeah. And it's, they, play that song so well and it's one of their best performed songs and it's you know neil said it's so hard to play for them that's why they always like to play it but you know the 2112 the overture i love um i love temples but yeah sometimes when you are a fan of the band you want to see the deeper cuts but we understand why they play them but it can get a little frustrating to hear those synths. I, I agree with you yeah, on that. I, I think in general, we're a pretty understanding fan base. You know, we don't mind too oh, much. Oh, yeah. And no, we, in fact, I, I thought it's funny that um, the Clockwork Angels tour, that people were more disappointed about that set list, and I was excited for that set right. list. I thought that was one of the better set lists that they had because they pulled out a lot of those songs that, personally, I have never seen. I've only started seeing the band in 91, I've seen every tour since then, but there's some stuff that I hadn't seen up until that point, and I'm glad I saw it. Sure. Yeah, I was um, the same I, way. That was a great, great tour. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to chime in too quickly. The second show that I saw was on the second leg of the tour. Um, that was at the Marcus Amphitheater in Milwaukee. And I had the pleasure of actually snagging fifth row tickets for that show, nice. um, basically right in front of Alex. My friend used to work at a grocery store chain around here um, that was also a Ticketmaster um, place where you go buy Ticketmaster tickets. So back back in the day in the 80s, um, late 80s, early 90s, well, even in the mid-80s, um, there was a place called Ticketron. They were bought out um, by Ticketmaster, but Ticketron, you didn't have, nowadays they have lotteries. Um, you could just go online for tickets and be wait in line for about a day or even a half day, be the first one in line, be the first one to get tickets. Ticketmaster started, and then we had to have a lottery. So if there was a group of us in line, obviously this before the Internet and Internet sales, we'd stand in line for tickets. Then the guy from Ticketmaster would come out, and we'd have to draw numbers. And then we'd have to rearrange the line based on the, the lottery. Whoever drew the lowest number would be number one. Mm-hmm. So I took the fun out of getting tickets, waiting in line, talking with friends, you know, hanging out before the tickets would go on sale. Well, my friend worked at a Ticketmaster in this grocery store. Nobody came to this grocery store for tickets. You know, and tickets would be go on sale Friday at 10 a.m. There would be nobody there. So my buddies and I, for this show, for this uh July 13th show, went and waited in line to get tickets. We were the only ones there. And my friend was, I, that worked there, we would also go to concerts together. So he had, like, the key commands on this computer down to where he could do it really fast, just, like, keep updating and updating. So when that clock hit 10 o'clock, he was like, oh, dude, I just made your fifth row ticket. And I'm like, oh, that's great. The next guy's behind me, they got all the way back to like row 28 mm-hmm. but i mean it was so lucky to get fifth row tickets not have to worry about standing in line with a lottery um the fifth row tickets that i think were under 47 dollars 
Um, so that just goes to show you how, that's, how much ticket yeah, prices that's a world that I, a world that I've never known and would never will know. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'll I'll never be able to experience that, unfortunately, with this monopoly and this death grip that Ticketmaster has on concerts now. But uh, I'm glad you got to experience it. Yeah, and it's and my whole point about that story um, and about you know going my 21st birthday and going out with friends is that you know the Rush I think for us are, is a band that we have these points in our lives where we remember things like this and. I'll remember stuff, this stuff that we talked about for forever, just because it was such a huge band in my life and such a huge that it, they were involved with big points in my life that um, you know the stories that I'll have forever are really wonderful for me, especially to talk about with other people. I'm totally with you. I I do it once a week now. You there? Oh, what was that? I'm sorry. <laughs> I said I'm totally with you. I do it once a week now. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's you know, we're able to do that, and um, I think we've lived with uh, people kind of making fun of us. I still get it, you know, from my friends who don't like Rush, and um, but I think that we all kind of learn to deal with that, and we put on the suit of armor, and we still nerd out and make geeks of ourselves, and. I think that's wonderful that we can do that, especially with this man. Yeah, it's totally worth it, in my opinion. Yeah. All right, Dylan. Um, one thing, yeah, one thing I wanted to say quickly is, uh, you know, we weren't supposed to look forward but um, as far as talking about this album, but I'm going to say that if nobody's ever checked it out, you have to check out the Neil's Work in Progress video. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was recorded at the exact same time that this album was recorded. Uh, it came out a year later after the album. But um, when that came out, just hearing Neil talk, because if you think about it, before this, we heard radio interviews. Um, we heard, you know, you can get, we used to go and get import CDs that had, um, you know, like a Roll of Bones single. And then they had Neil talk about Roll of Bones. So we'd listen to that constantly. Like, oh, we could hear his voice. We could hear his voice. It's awesome. You know, you can't. You can never have an mm-hmm. avenue to hear him talk, but this is like three hours of him talking, and it, it was just wonderful to watch. And a lot of the insight about these songs and observations um, I've got from that watching that video constantly when it came out, and it's such a great companion piece for this album. I wish every single album would have something like that, especially yeah. from all three of the guys, but, you know, just... If you haven't watched any of that, it gets kind of dry as far as the drumming aspect of it. But if you just watch and talk about each song, um, it's it's a great insight. Yeah, it's a it's a nice thing to watch. It's a like you said, it's a good look inside Neil's brain. You know. Uh, yeah. All yeah. right, we gotta we gotta run here. We got a nice fat episode in though, Daryl. Good. I'm glad. I, I had fun. That's. I'm. I was totally psyched for it, and I'm glad it turned out. I hope it turns out well, but I'm, I think it did. Yeah. It, this was. This was really, really nice. Thank you, Daryl. Um. I want to hear from you guys. If uh, if you have something to say about Test for Echo, send me something on Twitter or email me at rushcast2112 at gmail dot com. And thank you to Daryl Hurst. Daryl, do you want to tell everybody how they can follow you on Twitter? Yeah. It's my name um, at Daryl Hurst. D-A, 
R-Y-L-L-H-U-R-S-T. Great, and I'll, I'll put your, uh, your, your handle in the tweet as well. And uh, all right, thanks, man. Thank you very much. One thing I forgot to mention is that Daryl has, uh, he sends me his phone number for the, the phone call, and his number ends, the last four digits of his number are 2112. I thought, are you kidding me? I thought, I thought maybe he was like playing a joke on me or whatever, but no, his, he, say, he told me before we started recording that he went and uh, he had his number changed so that there was a Rush album inside of it, and I think that's really cool. Hey, so I wanted to share one more thing with you. Um, a listener named Nick said, hey, I like your dog years theory, and I went ahead and cut it together. So he said, here's dog years without the choruses. So what you hear is verse, and then like a little interlude, and then verse, and then bridge, and then verse, and then the end of the tune. And it actually works. Like, it, it works completely. It, it's very fluid, and it... And it um, it just works, and I want to let you hear a little bit of it, just a little bit. And if you want the full track, send me an email, and I'll send it to you, courtesy of Nick. Here you go. Here's Dog Years with no cheesy, uh, cheesy choruses. Thanks, guys. Seems to me. Stop. 